Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. I've titled our message tonight, The Perseverance of the Saints and the Wrath of God. The Perseverance of the Saints and the Wrath of God. So what we're going to do is, this is again our third time through this chapter, but uh, as you will, I hope, see tonight how deep and profound this chapter really is. Um, We're going to read this whole chapter and then pick verses 6 through 20. Uh, as our main uh, main section of study this evening. So follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard tonight. I hope that doesn't throw anyone off. Um, I have simply found this to not only be uh, rather easy for me to study, but also to uh, clearly articulate. I think it's it's um, I think it's accurate. So just follow along with me as I read verses one through twenty of Revelation chapter fourteen. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Verse 8, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out from the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's the precious inspired word of God. God is righteous. God is gracious, long-suffering, holy, sovereign, merciful, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present and just, and therefore he must punish sinners for their sin against his most holy character. Joel refers to what we have just read here in the final stages of chapter 14 as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is for the righteous. It is a day of salvation for the wicked. It is that great and final day when grace runs out and God's wrath is poured out upon them. And what we will be examining is this final day that is again depicted in Revelation chapter 19 when God's just anger and wrath is poured out upon the wicked. Note that chapter 14, the way it is constructed, it serves as an outline of God's final judgment. So what I would like us to do tonight is simply look at this section, six verses 6 through 20, from the standpoint of six headings. And each one of these headings will begin with an angel proclaimed. So the first heading that we'll see in verses 6 and 7 is the angel proclaimed the everlasting gospel in verses 6 and 7. An angel proclaimed the fall of Babylon in verse 8. In verses 9 through 13, we will see the angel proclaiming the coming wrath of God. The fourth angel makes for our fourth heading, the angel proclaiming the harvest of the ungodly in verses 14 through 16. In verse 17, we will see an angel proclaiming nothing, which is rather fearful, actually, as we get there in verse number 17. And heading number six, the angel proclaiming the winepress of the wrath of God in verses 18 through 20. So there are our six headings that we will use to study this portion tonight. So let's look together at the first heading in verses six and seven, the angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Notice John says, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal or the everlasting gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. And he's preaching to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. Here's three points that you need to note. Fear God 
and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. There's three commands. Fear God, give him glory, worship him. There's three key points of application there for us in verse number seven. But the first question we must answer is, who is this angel? What is this angel? This is an angelic being, one of the angelic elect, the holy angels. Uh, This created heavenly being that is proclaiming this everlasting gospel. This angelic messenger who is helping the 144,000 to preach the gospel. Multitudes, to remind you, multitudes of both Jew and Gentile will be saved in the great tribulation period, during the tribulation time. Uh, And this angel is proclaiming the everlasting gospel. I've heard several commentators say that this is a or an gospel, uh, a gospel that is not like the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no reason to, to affirm that. This is the everlasting gospel. There is only one good news. This is the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. So let's really quick, let's review the gospel. What is the wondrous beauty of the gospel? Well, number one is that you cannot save yourself. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There, are, there isn't enough good works that we could possibly do to rectify our lost condition. Therefore, God sent his only begotten son, born of a virgin who lived a sinless life and died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of his church. Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead for our justification, and now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession. Here is the important factor of presenting the gospel. What are you going to do with that? Will you receive this true gospel? This is the call that is being subjected to the entire earth at this time that we're reading. And now... We are going into the nations and preaching the gospel that they would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, that they would not look to themselves anymore, that they would turn from their sin and embrace this sovereign king, this Lord, this king of kings and Lord of lords. There will be judgment for those who rebel against God. This is why we call men and women to repent of their sin and and embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone in his finished work upon the cross. Notice that I want to point out as well that this gospel is being preached by this angel flying in mid-heaven, whether that be mid-heaven or midday, off the earth, in the sky, proclaiming this to all nations. We have no reason to interpret this any other way. But I just want to simply pose a question here that this gospel is going to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. Did this actually happen in 70 AD? This is another one of those below the waterline inconsistencies for the preterist position. Uh, Surely the gospel did not go in 70 AD to every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people group at that time. Even today, there are 20, I was looking this up, there, there are 2,600 known languages who do not have Bibles today. 2,600 known languages who do not have a copy of the scriptures. In the last 100 years, uh, people have received a, gospel, a word, the Bible, in their own language for the first time, just in the last 100 years. 
There are still nations to be reached. There are still uh, peoples to be reached. Even as we stand here right now, we have been called to go and been called to take this gospel to the ends of the world. Notice these three points in verse number eight. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth. John is again putting this panoramic picture. He's pointing back to who created all things, and he's looking to the end of time. He has Genesis 1-1 in one hand, and he has the end of Revelation, the end of the tribulation period, the end of time in the other. So what does it mean to fear God? This is where we can derive some application here in verse number seven. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it simply means to have a, a reverential honor for him. It, it means to be humble before him. It means to forsake self and submit to him. To fear God as a son would fear his father. I don't fear my father. Um, but I do respect him. I do honor him as my earthly father. It's the same sense with our heavenly father. We, we fear him in the sense of he is all powerful. He knows everything about us. There is nothing that can be hid from him. And we, we reverence him. We honor him. We cherish him. We love him. We fear him um, because he is so great and so magnificent. So here's the command. Fear God. Do you fear God? Have you considered fearing him? Have you practiced as, uh, as one pastor recently put it, do you practice daily the presence of Jesus Christ? That he is near to you. That he is dwelling within you by his spirit. Do you, do you trust that he's leading you? Uh, do you practice him being near? Do you realize he's so close? He's closer than a brother. It's a very sobering thought to consider, really, to be thinking that God is so near, that Christ is so near. And here's the second element. If you fear God, give him glory. Now, you hear me preaching this all the time. Give glory to God, right? We, we, we say that all the time. And, and you see it very prevalent today. You see this printed on T-shirts and hats and even tattooed on people's arms and different things. You see, you see the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, right? Everybody hammers out the soli deo gloria. That's a wonderful thing. To God be the glory. I love it. But I think... What we have done was we have created a click and we've lost sight of what that actually means. To bring God glory. What does it mean to give him glory? How do you give God glory? And obviously in the context of Revelation chapter 14, this is taking place in the great tribulation period. This angel is preaching the everlasting gospel, commanding men and women at the time to fear God, give him glory and worship him. Well, that's the same call that we have presently right now. So, so how do we do that? I want to give you four points. How do we give God glory? Number one, trust him. Do you know that you give God glory when you have faith in who he is? Trust him? Do you trust him? Uh, do you, everybody's so anxious right now. They're like, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? And right now, what happened today? What about yesterday? What's going to happen next week? And am I going to be able to take my big... Trust him. And you will give him glory. When you trust him, you bring God glory. That's how we can, step one, give him glory. Step two, 
If you are a born-again believer, you have faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You trust him. Number two, you will obey. You will obey. There will be obedience. Faith without obedience is not faith. I'm not saying that you have to have obedience to receive faith. I'm saying faith is brought as a work of God in the life of a person whereby their heart is changed, faith is gifted, repentance is gifted, and that will change you. That will make you different. There will be obedience. You will desire to live a holy life. You will desire to live according to the word of God and you will bring him glory. Number three, the S word that everyone hates, especially in the United States. Submit. Submit. You know what submit means? It means to bow. Submit means to surrender. Submit means to, as that silly country song goes, take your hands off the wheel, you know? And I'm not advocating that you do this, but there is a sense when you submit to God, you're saying, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Lead me the way you need me to go. Make me who you need me to be. Teach me what I need to know. You submit to him. And finally, number four, die to self. This happens at salvation, but Jesus Christ commands us to take up our cross daily and follow him, right? We are to die to self every single day. We are to be selfless. There's four areas, four ways that you can bring him glory right now. What? Trust him, obey him, submit to him, and die to self. Take up your cross and, let, and, and do the will of God. Live for the will of God. Notice that the angel in verse number seven points out natural revelation. He, he, he points to the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Guys, when you look out this window, you look out this door and you see that there is a material earth. There is, there is natural creation out there. Everybody's going crazy all over the internet today because of a really big solar flare. And we've seen these pictures about how tiny the earth looks compared to the sun. And all I can say is when I see those big pictures, I'm not afraid of a solar flare. I say, wow, how magnificent is our God to create such a, mag a wondrous universe like this? Who could come up with this and keep it all together? And this angel points out that there is a God because you're standing on an earth. There is no excuse for those who reject this gospel. Number two, in verse number eight, we find the angel proclaiming the fall of Babylon. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of him, her immorality. This, this one verse is loaded with truth. Uh, we could preach for weeks just on this one verse. But suffice it to say, what is Babylon and why is it fallen? This is a second angel. Uh, Babylon, it is derived in its original sense in Genesis chapter 11, its origins was the Tower of Babel. Babel is uh, the roots of Babylon. Babel means confusion. Um, you remember what took place in Genesis chapter 11. Men from, they gathered themselves all together and they sought to build a tower up to the heavens and 
God came down and confounded or confused their language so that they wouldn't be able to commit their idolatrous acts in disobeying God. God had commanded them to go into all the world and subdue it, and and they were not doing that. They wanted to come together and and build an idol, essentially. And God confused them and sent them into the, the, all the earth with different languages. And what we find then is... Uh, Babel later progressed to Babylon and we remember the famous king of Babylon who was the famous king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar that's right Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was the famous king of Babylon who was made to eat grass like an ox until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his fingernails like bird claws Babylon is essentially Babel in full bloom it is idolatry in full bloom. We see this in a, in a sense today. We see this, the way John is describing this now is that there is this sense which Babylon has been into full bloom. The root of Babel and Babylon is idolatry, false worship, worship of false gods. Uh, Babylon is also used to refer to the apostate church in Revelation chapter 17 as we get there in a couple weeks. Um, In Revelation chapter 17, you'll find the word Babylon there as well. In Revelation 16, if you're there, just turn with me now over to Revelation 16. Look at verse number 17. In Revelation 16, verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl, judgment, I'm inserting that word there, Upon the air, because that uh, upon the air, because this is the seventh bold judgment being described here. They're going to come in rapid fire succession after these chapters in which we're studying here. And a loud voice came, verse 17, out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So there's the same association there. This idolatrous reference to this personified Babylon is given the fierce cup of God's wrath. Back to Revelation chapter 14. But what does it mean here? What does it mean that Babylon has fallen? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She, was, who was made, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her, her immorality. Well, simply put, Babylon referred to here is the rejection of the gospel in the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of Antichrist. This is the false world system that is presently active and will be in full bloom at the time of the Antichrist. Uh, for instance, I got on the computer today and I saw the news headline about Disney. I'm sure you've all heard this now. Has everybody heard what's going on with Disney? Well, you need to be made aware. For the last 30 to 40 years, we've watched Disney go into this massively liberal trajectory. And uh, the, the reason all the moms are here are like, yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about. Because, because our kids are so enthralled by anything Disney for even a moment's notice. But what we see now is that the executive producer of Disney, a, a, a woman with several children, and these children are apparently transgender and pangender. So this executive producer of, of, of Disney has, 
somehow a video has been leaked to the press saying that their agenda is to uh, incorporate LGBTQ plus characters in the, into Disney um, moving forward from now on. And we will see that come. We've already seen that happening in different, um, different ways. But this is a sign. This is a, a byproduct, if you would. This is a fruit of the Babylon mentality, this false um, worship, this, this antichrist-like system, this, this demonic uh, mindset. And maybe it's just me, but I hope it's not just me. We've seen that in the last several months and years that society has run rampant for confusion. Society has run rampant in, the, in, in insanity. It's like they've lost their minds, uh, especially with the homosexual agenda and the transgenderism and all the many different things that are associated with that. The world will become intoxicated with the pleasures of the flesh. It will be a, a massive display of rebellion and hatred and perversion and idolatry uh, that this angel is saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has been made, she has made all the nations. Dear ones, I had a, someone ask me a question here recently. Where's America in the book of Revelation? She's right here in verse 8. All the nations drank of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This is the truth of Scripture. As much as we would love to hold to the fact that, nation, that, that the United States is somehow a godly Christian nation, dear ones, when we parade such immorality and perversion as we do in our streets, it is foolish to try to embrace the idea that this is somehow a godly Christian nation. This nation is under the judgment of God. And the sooner we open our eyes to that, the sooner we'll get after the business to which we've been called to do, namely preach the gospel to the lost at all costs. Uh, verse number nine, the angel proclaiming the impending wrath of God. Notice that there was a rejection of this gospel. The, then another angel, a third one, verse nine, one followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark in, of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. This angel is proclaiming that he will drink, not the angel, but those who take part in the worship of the beast, will drink of the wrath of God, which is mixed without uh, the, which is mixed in full strength. Now, we touched on this last time we were together. Wine in the first century and in the ancient Orient, wine was never served in full uh, fermentation. It was always cut with water. Um, water was not always necessarily safe to drink. You'd mix it with wine through the fermentation process. It would, one, it would cut the wine, the alcohol content of the wine, it would cut it drastically, and it would serve as a purification system for the water. So whenever we're talking about that John is describing, this wine is without mixture, it is full strength. It is, it is totally inebriating. The, 
the insanity that is taking place at this time. And let me point something out, else out to you. God is going to make those who rebel against him, he's going to make them drink this idolatry. He's going to make them drink his wrath. Um, such was the case with Moses, right? You remember what Moses did whenever Moses came down off of Mount Sinai and he hears the sound of a party in the camp, the sound of war in the camp. There was explosive perversion taking place in the camp of Israel. And Moses comes down with Joshua and there's Israel dancing around the golden calf. And as they're dancing around the golden calf, you know what Moses asked Aaron, how did this calf come about? And Moses said, I don't know. We just took our earrings out and stuff and our nose pins and we put it in the fire and out popped this cow. And Moses ground it up and made him drink it. Do you remember that? A a, a victorious king would make his captors choke down drinks. It It was a humiliating process where they would just totally pin the person down and make them choke down uh, diluted wine or wine in full mixture. It was a sign of submission. It was a sign of overpowering whenever you make someone to choke down a drink. And what God is describing here in Revelation chapter 14 is those who rebel against the gospel will choke down the wrath of Almighty God in full strength in full mixture, undiluted. Where's the precious promise in this, what I'm telling you right now? Where's the precious promise in what I'm talking about? As we see this fearful image that John is describing and that these wicked individuals who rebel against Christ and rebel against the gospel, they are forced to choke down the wrath of Almighty God. Where is the precious promise for us as believers? It is in that Jesus Christ is the one who drank down the wrath that was so deserved to us, and he did so on our behalf. Whenever we meet Christ in the garden, he's praying to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What was in the cup? The cup was containing not literally a cup that Jesus was holding, but he was going to drink down the wrath of Almighty God in the place of his people. This is the wondrous promise that we have as Christians is we see that Jesus, our Savior, endured our wrath for us. When we read of this, we see the imagery of what it will look like for those who rebel and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a very fearful, a very sobering, um, and a very joyous thing at the same time. It all seems to be mixed together as we rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for us to set us free. Christ drank the wrath of God on our behalf. Notice also in these verses that there is a clear description of hell. There are individuals, liberal individuals, who pastor churches presently that think that there's, you shouldn't teach on hell. You shouldn't teach that there's a hell. You shouldn't teach that there's fire in hell. That you shouldn't teach anything that has bad connotations to people because they might get offended or they might get scared and have to leave the church. Dear ones, we must preach about the reality of hell. There is a hell to be shunned. There is a place where right now there are souls who are in torment because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Notice that he will be tormented in verse number 10. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. This is a real place of torment where the wrath of God is poured out. And this raises some questions. What does it mean that regarding hell, 
that they will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, capital L. That's Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Is it possible that these individuals who are being tormented in hell are actually being tormented, separated from relational relationship with Christ, but not out of his sight and his sovereign omniscience? That's what that means. That they will not escape the sovereign omniscient sight of Almighty God. Rather, they will be in the sight of the Lamb for eternity as the wrath of God is poured out upon them. Keep something here in Revelation chapter 14. Look at Psalm 139. Look at Psalm 139, verse number 7. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where David's writing here. This is talking about the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God in every, in every way. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in hell, behold, you are there. You can't escape this almighty God. Probably one of the most fearful elements of hell is that you will be tormented for eternity upon eternities in the presence of the Lamb. You will look upon the one whom they have pierced and know that you rejected his salvation. Again, in Matthew chapter 10, go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And there's been much confusion over the years about this verse. Sadly, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 we touched on this on Sunday evening. Do not fear those who kill the body. There's a command. There's an application right there. You shouldn't be afraid when somebody's threatening you because you're a Christian. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? I can tell you it's not the devil. It's almighty God. Remember on Sunday night, I said, who are... I said, who are we saved from? Who is it that we're saved from? And, and I, I prefaced the question with what are we saved from? And, you know, sin is the right answer. Death is the right answer. Hell is the right answer. But ultimately, we are saved from God. We are saved from the wrath of God. Let me write it on the board again. Because for those of you that weren't here on Sunday night, I think you really are going to want to see this. We are saved. We have been saved. If we are saved, we are saved from God by God for God. Do you see the purpose in that? You have been saved from God, by God. Isn't that the most wondrous news you've ever heard in your life? Why? For God. There's your Christian life in a nutshell. This is why we breathe. Because we have been saved from God, by God, for God. What does this perseverance of the saints mean? Back to Revelation chapter 14, verse number 12. 
I love this phrase, and your, your, your uh, translation may not have perseverance of the saints there. Maybe you're seeing why I read from the NASB tonight, because can someone who has a King James here, can you read to me verse 12? Anybody? It's okay. I'm not going to you know, persecute you. Yeah, could you please read verse 12? Patience is a good word to use there, but doesn't perseverance mean so much more? Patience is a very good thing. (laughs) Patience is something that God works in us, but perseverance, you know, when I hear the word perseverance, this tells me that, okay, he started something in me and he's going to finish it. He's going to get me to the end. He's going to bring me through. This is the perseverance of the saints. Guys, I, I can't even tell you how, how silly. I hear these people preaching that you can lose your salvation. It, it drives me crazy. What kind of assurance do you give anybody whenever you say, well, I hope you wake up today and you had some good thoughts. Man, you were lost in your dreams. If it was up to you to keep your salvation, well, first of all, <laughs> if you could lose your salvation, dear ones, you would. When I see verses like this, when we see the perseverance of the saints, how do we know that a a saint is persevering? How do we know that a saint is actually a persevering saint? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Those saints who have been purchased, who have been regenerated, who have been redeemed, who have been given faith and repentance, what, what do they do? They keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. So, so, so let's answer the question, you know, maybe somebody here today is struggling with the assurance of their salvation. Do you love Christ more than your sin? I mean, of course, we love him infinitely more than, we, than our sin. We hate our sin. We hate anything that distances us from God. When we look to Christ, we see everything we've ever needed and everything we've ever wanted. Our hearts yearn for him. And when we think about our sin, it makes us disgusted. That's how you know that you're a persevering saint. You hate your sin. You repent of your sin. You confess your sin. You walk in trust, with, in, trust in Christ. You know, of course you're going to wrestle. Of course you're going to fall. Of course you're going to fail. But your, your assurance doesn't reside in you. It resides in Christ and all that he is. That's the wondrous hope of the gospel. We don't trust in ourselves anymore. We trust in him. And we look to him. We don't get anxious. We don't get worked up. You know, you're saying, well, you're looking worked up right now. I'm excited, okay? That's excitement. I get excited about this stuff. We, we don't get worried. We, we, we trust him to lead us, even if it means through death. Uh, maybe one of you guys who love the Puritans, you could help me with this. I think it was a man named Mr. Ridley. Uh, who, was, who was the martyr who was washing his hands in the flame? Do you know who I'm talking about? I can't they, lit, they lit the twigs beneath his stake, and he just raised his hands and started to wash them as they burned him alive. Why? Because, dear ones, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. (laughs) My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You can take my life here, but my life is hid in Christ. And that's the wondrous perseverance that we endure even through death. Okay, let's hit the gas pedal a little bit here. 
perseverance of the saints means that we are steadfast. We look to Christ, the one who secures us. Saints, by the way, means holy ones. You do not need to die to become a saint. If you are born again, you are a saint. You do not live that way. It is not realized in its fullness at present because we sin. But it means one set apart. It means one sanctified unto Christ. It is a holy one, somebody who has been born again. Uh, you're not venerated. You're not changed into a saint whenever you close your eyes in death. That's garbage. Um, and, and surely along those same lines, there is no purgatory as well. What does it mean that it says here in verse number 13? And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That is a prosperity preacher's nightmare. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Well, allow me to just simply quote for the interpretation of this very challenging, I would say, I would say rather difficult passage verse to interpret. Allow me to just quote Walford regarding this verse. He says, quote, it is far better to be dead at the hand of the beast than to have favor as his worshiper. Just think about that. It is far better to be dead at the hand of the beast than to find favor as his worshiper. Guys, as we progress in time, I'm, 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 I'm not a prophet, okay? I'm not telling you that I think I know what's coming. But I think what we're going to see is more and more persecution upon the church. Especially as you begin to take a stand against homosexuality for the biblical worldview of a created male and female role and that that marriage should only be in the Lord with male and female, uh, singular male and female. As we uphold that, I think we're going to see more as we already are persecution. Um, well, let's move on. Let's move on from that. This verse, by the way, is the second beatitude in the book of Revelation. I'll give you a piece of homework. You can simply go home and look up the beatitudes of Revelation. The blessed bees, or blessed are the, of the book of Revelation. There are several, so you can find several. They are blessed bees. They're called the Beatitudes. This brings us to the fourth angel, the angel proclaiming the harvest of the ungodly. Look at verse number 14. And I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like the son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. It is literally, that word ripe means it is engorged with juices. It is ready to burst. Verse 16, then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is one of what I think two reap uh, harvests in this chapter. This is the first harvest. There's a second one that we're going to see um, in verse number 19, 18 and 19. But this angel proclaiming the harvest of the ungodly, this is uh, none other than the son of man who is seated upon the cloud with a crown on his head. This is Jesus Christ. And he commands this angel uh, to place the sickle in, the harvesting tool. Uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but my, I, my dad had a sickle whenever I was a kid. I'm, I'm talking one of these big three-foot metal things, you know. And we used to run around in the yard and play with that. It's a wonder that we didn't get killed. 
I mean, I don't know how we were running through the yard with a three-foot sickle, and not one of us got stitches one time with that rusty old thing. But I'll never forget the, what, what that thing looked like. Have you ever seen the, the sickle competitions that those guys do, where they sharpen up those big five-foot sickles, and there they are, and hey, and they're just... I mean, talk about some guys I would never want to get a hold of. You know, they, they were just really going to town. But what we're seeing here is that this, this is harvest time. This is the end of the age. And, and just for the sake of, of hermeneutical consistency, what does hermeneutics mean? Come on, somebody in here has to know what hermeneutics means. We've talked about it so much. I want you to be so familiar with this word that in 20 years from now, you're going to say, do you know how many times you've told me the word hermeneutics? I'm going to say, tell me what it means. You get a trophy and a piece of candy. And you said it was October 13th. <laughs> <laughs> for, for one of the 20 times. <laughs> for one of the 20 times. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. It means, it means the rules or science of interpreting Scripture. There are rules, and we want to hold a consistent hermeneutic. So check this out. Let's read to the end of the chapter here. And then we'll close our time by looking at what Jesus had said about this time. Look at verse number 17. The fifth angel proclaiming nothing. It's a fearful scene. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. But he doesn't say anything. Then another angel, that one, the one who has power over fire, came from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather clusters, the vine of the earth. Of, from, the, from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung the sickle and the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. These angels, in rather close succession, one angel is simply walking out of heaven's temple with a sickle, and he's not saying anything. What a fearful image that is. He's actually commanded by another angel to take part in this second harvest of the wicked. This angel simply obeys. He puts in the sickle and thus brings about the great wine press of the wrath of God. Has anybody ever seen a wine press uh, with feet? Like, with feet. Uh, with people in it doing the thing with the what do they call that? I love Lucy. What is it? I love Lucy. You would, you would say that. The the uh, everybody in here knows about the I love Lucy. So, <laughs> so, but but in all seriousness, that that is the imagery. Can you picture those individuals squashing and popping those grapes, but instead of grapes, it, it is human beings. The carnage is unmatched. This is the final judgment of Almighty God. It is the final harvest. We have three minutes. I want you to go to Matthew 13 as we bring our time to a close. We've just barely made the study of this chapter. And remember, how do we apply this? Really, I want you to take away from tonight's Bible study. I want you to, to take away from this Bible study, as I said before, hermeneutical consistency a consistency in your hermeneutic why would we interpret this chapter that angels mean angels that this is the harvest as the bringing in the sickles that this is the wine press of God's wrath well simply put Jesus spoke of this and he did so with parables 
In Matthew chapter 13, we see that chapter that is just, it contains many parables of the kingdom. The kingdom. First, in verse number 24, you see the parable of the wheat and the tares. Look at verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That's Christ. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, that's Satan, came and sowed tares. Those are the children of the devil. Among the wheat, which are the children of the kingdom, and went away, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came, verse 27, and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus gives the description, the interpretation of this parable in verses 36 through 43. But quite clearly, in verse 30, Jesus is talking about a literal harvest, an outpouring of God's wrath in that final time upon the wicked, the tares that will be burned up with fire. And then he also references the reapers. Well, who are the reapers? The reapers are described in the second series of verses, whenever Jesus gives his interpretation of this section, that they are the angels, So we have a hermeneutical consistency in Matthew chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14 that we don't need to spiritualize any of the words between the two. We can remain consistent and still arrive at the right interpretation. Look at verse number um, 47. This is the parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another reference to hell. Now there's so much more that we can teach on these just simple, these two parables here. Um, which, by the way, the parable of the wheat and the tares has been greatly misconstrued and interpreted and forced into the idea that somehow there are wheat and tares within the context of the church. But really what Jesus is teaching here is in the context of the world, there are believers and unbelievers, and there will be a harvest time when the wicked will be uh, gathered up and cast into the fire. So um, what can we take away from this real quick? Oh, we're a minute over. Well, I've said enough. Are there any questions or comments of what we've studied tonight? Jim. Just real quick.